Hi and welcome to Scandinavian Art by Konsthistoriepodden. My name is Alexandra Frid. And I'm Alexandra Herlitz. We are so happy to be back with the second episode of our podcast. And today we are going to talk about an artist who is one of the most famous Swedish painters. And it's an artist that many people asked us to do a podcast about. Of course, we're talking about Anders Sorn. He represents something we're really curious about, that is artistic entrepreneurship in early industrial society. Sorn was a talented entrepreneur. He was born out of wedlock to a single mother in Dalekarlia and died as one of Sweden's wealthiest men. And in between, he had a career distinguished by smart business decisions with an amazing talent to adapt to various markets. There's a lot to be said about Sorn. He's probably most well known for all the peasant girls and naked women he painted, but we have chosen a work of art that represents other aspects of his career. We decided to look at his painting Omnibus, which exists in two versions. The first version is the one we're going to talk about today. It's titled Omnibus One and was painted in 1892 in Paris. Today it's at the National Museum in Stockholm. The second version, also painted in 1892 in Paris, was shown at the Paris Salon the same year and sold in 1893 at the Chicago World's Fair to the American art collector Isabella Stewart Gardner from Boston. This version is one of the works of art that paved the way for Sohn's successful career on the other side of the Atlantic. Omnibus One is painted with oil on canvas. It measures 99.5 centimeters times 66 centimeters and was acquired by the National Museum in 1985. The work is perceived as a snapshot from inside a horse-drawn omnibus. The word omnibus was later shortened to simply bus. A number of people in dark clothes are sitting in a row as the vehicle hurries through a bustling big city, which we can discern through the windows behind them. It's an interesting painting in many ways. It reflects a new society with innovations like electric light and public transport. At the same time, art critics called it an ultra-modern painting. Before we say more about the painting and its subject matter and expression, we thought we should present the artist, Anders Sorn. Anders Leonard Sorn was born on February 18, 1860 in Mora, Dalekarlia, a region in central Sweden. His mother, Grud Anna Andersdotter, met a German brewer named Leonard Sorn while briefly employed at a brewery in Uppsala. The relationship resulted in a son, Anders, who the father acknowledged, and he let the boy use his German surname. Sorn in German means wrath. However, Anders' father never married his mother, and as a result, he grew up with his maternal grandparents in Uvraden, Dalekarlia. After a few years of school in Enköping, which were made possible by his inheritance from his father, Andersson was accepted as a student at the Art Academy in Stockholm. As an artist looking for his way, he chose to specialize in sculpture, but at a student exhibition in 1880, he exhibited a watercolor painting called In Morning, which led to an initial breakthrough. 
And as a result of this breakthrough, several wealthy Stockholm families commissioned works from him. And this is how he met his future wife, Emma Lam. She came from the Lam family, who were Jewish merchants, and the young lovers eloped because Soren's financial situation was insufficient to offer a woman of Emma Lam's standing a secure life. From the 1880s, Soren spent much of the time abroad. First he traveled to Spain, as well as to England, where he became a popular portrait painter very soon after his arrival in London. These commissioned portraits made it possible for them to marry, and the couple were wed in a civil ceremony in the fall of 1885, before settling in Liselby, a village close to his hometown Mora. But the young couple had the continent in their sights. In the spring of 1888, Anders and Emma settled more permanently in the Paris district Montmartre. The name Montmartre means Mount of Martyrs, and not until the 1860s was it incorporated in the growing city of Paris, and many artists moved there during this period. Even during the years when the couple lived in Paris, they spent summers with Sworn's mother on Dalare, an island in the Stockholm archipelago. In 1888, Anderson's oil painting titled A Fisherman in St. Ives was shown at the Paris Salon. He painted it at the artist's colony in St. Ives in Cornwall, where he spent time with other international artists. It was later purchased by the French state, and at the Paris World Exposition in 1889, Sorn was awarded the gold medal and the French Legion of Honor. From 1893, Sorn made regular trips to the United States, where the most influential people in the country commissioned portraits from him. Presidents and industrialists asked Sorn to paint them, and his reputation as a portrait painter grew. His subjects included the American presidents Grover Cleveland, William Howard Taft, and Theodore Roosevelt, as well as the world's first dollar billionaire, John D. Rockefeller. At this time, Soren received about $4,000 for a portrait, which equals, in today's money, to about $100,000. In 1896, the couple returned home to Mora, to the Soren house, but they remained cosmopolitans for the rest of their lives. Soren depicted his native region in numerous images, such as Midsummer Dance from 1897, which is now at the National Museum in Stockholm. But not only did the subject matter of his work change somewhat in character, the couple's role as patrons in the community had an impact on the development of the region, and they co-funded the Residential College for Adult Education in Mora. Andersson continued traveling until his death on August the 22nd, 1920, at which time he was one of the wealthiest people in Sweden. Okay, now let's shift focus to our selected work, Omnibus. When you think of Sorn outside Sweden, you tend to think of England, where he first spent time. But he actually had a long and important stay in Paris. He painted in line with what was currently en vogue in Paris, a number of urban scenes that illustrated his ability as an observer of the time. Omnibus was Sorn's main project during the winter of 1892. The title reveals that we are on a horse-drawn carriage, which in the 19th century emerged as the first form of scheduled traffic in the cities. So these vehicles were very modern. 
The term omnibus is Latin and means for everyone, and we see this in Sorn's painting. It's a diverse mix of passengers in the big city. We see men and women wearing different types of clothes. Some are simply dressed, like the worker in the black cap, while others are more elegant, like the man next to him in a top hat, or the second woman from the left sporting a feather boa and a small hat, or a coif, a hair decoration of colored ribbons, crepe, or feathers. The woman in the foreground is holding a large square box that we see from above, putting the viewer in the middle of the scene on the same omnibus as the seated people. In the other version of the painting, which is now in Boston, the box is round. It's a hat box with a leather strap with a buckle. This detail is the easiest way to distinguish the two versions of the painting. So it's Anders Sorn himself who has identified the woman as a milliner, that is, a maker of women's hats. In a letter, Sorn described the figures he rendered in the painting. The worker, tired after a hard day's work, falls asleep on the soft shoulder of the unknown woman seated beside him. The kind milliner in the foreground, whose face has a patch of electric light from the boulevard, is, I feel, an appropriate example of the hard-working, honest and good working class. Sorn has also written in letters about the task he set for himself. He wanted to experiment and paint the interior of an omnibus in the evening with electric light getting into the mix. He wanted to explore the interplay between different natural and artificial light sources, a phenomenon that many artists in the late 19th century were interested in recreating. The different light sources that existed alongside one another at the end of the 19th century, with their varying qualities, made for a fascinating challenge. Artists like Sorn were keen to study how the most modern light of all, electric light, interacted with traditional light sources like candlelight and gaslight, or the natural light of the sunset. Especially during his years in Paris, Sorn studied the interplay of different light sources in a number of paintings. For instance, in Effect of Night from 1895, now at the Gothenburg Museum of Art, he experimented how the electric light from a cafe flows onto the sidewalk and meets the light from the gas lights in the street. Omnibus was one of Sorn's most demanding works during the winter of 1892. In letters, he revealed how time-consuming the assignment was. I had to take many a trip on the omnibus from Montmartre before my idea was clear in my head and later in my work. So you can imagine the actual working process, that he made a number of trips where he studied the light in the carriage and how the light played on the passengers' faces, sometimes in daylight, sometimes in the evening light. In the end, he decided to paint the afternoon winter light. We see that there is very little natural light illuminating the scene in the carriage, but we see the yellow glow of artificial electric light forming highlights on the passengers' faces and clothes, and causing the package on the woman's lap to lighten up the foreground. You might ask why Sorn chose to place a large box on the woman's lap. When you wonder about a certain detail in a painting and why it is there, you can hold something in front of it or squint a little to see whether your perception of the painting changes. In this case, 
You see that the package doesn't just help portray the afternoon crush of tired bodies on public transport. It is also there for reasons of composition. The light surface of the box relates to the yellow light that we see through the windows in the background. There we see the strong electric light from the cafes and shops flowing out onto the crowded city sidewalk while the central row of the five figures on the bus is painted in dark, mainly black tones. The diagonal composition is emphasized by the illuminated package in the foreground, and the colors of the package tie in with the yellow-gray-white background. Another practical problem that Sohn had to address was that the conditions, especially the light on a bus trip, are difficult to recreate in the studio. As the bus moves through the city, the light in the interior changes constantly. You can see that it must have been difficult, based on sketches and memory, to create the vibrant, fleeting play of light that Sohn depicts in this painting. He made many studies in pencil and ink, as well as in oil, focusing specifically on light. In a letter he described his work in the studio. A little ray of daylight through a crack had to serve as electric light in the studio. Let's move on to the next aspects, Sorn's studio work and style. The loose light brushstrokes that he used to paint this composition suggest the vitality and movement in this caption of big city life. At the same time, these brushstrokes give the painting a snapshot character, as if the scene is unfolding before our eyes. We get the impression that Soren quickly captured the moment with oil paint on the canvas. In reality, he spent a lot of time on the piece, not only on site in the omnibus, but also in his studio. This sense of a snapshot, that it's an everyday situation, is what relates this work to French Impressionism, which also took great interest in the representation of light and of colors affected by light. As early as 1872, Claude Monet had exhibited his work Impression Sunrise in Paris, and the devastating criticism of the work associated the initially contemptuous term with the style of art. Twenty years later, in the winter of 1892, when Sorn painted Omnibus in his studio in Montmartre, Impressionism was still à la mode in the Western world. The 19th century was a period of great technical innovation. For instance, photography emerged during this time. You might assume that contemporary artists saw photography as a threat, but for many artists during the 19th century, it was a source of inspiration. The Impressionists had declared their goal to paint impressions, that is, their own impressions, and when rendering them, they focused a lot on the interaction of light and color and on the vitality of the subjects. For this reason, they did not see photography, which was black and white, as a threat. However, they could find inspiration in the subject matter and the cropping of the photographs. If you look at paintings by Monet, such as his Water Lilies or his Parisian Avenues, you can see that his cropping often seems casually selected, showing just a small portion of something much larger. We perceive a randomness in the choice of subjects and the cropping typical of Impressionist paintings, which often showed the big city life in French metropolis. This randomness is what, in turn, 
gives the scene a strong authenticity. The composition tells us that we are witnessing a scene that has actually taken place this way and that the artist was able to capture the moment with his rapid brushstrokes. The powerful and visible brushstrokes make the scene appear sketch-like. Zorn doesn't seem to care much about little details and clear contours delineating the separate fields of color in the composition. With rapid brushstrokes, Zorn painted five darkly dressed people sitting in a row in front of a series of windows, positioned diagonally in the painting. By not painting clear and defined contours, instead using loose brushstrokes to suggest the objects, outlines and shapes, the viewer gets a greater sense of vitality and movement. We mentioned earlier how hard it is to reproduce the fleeting light that moves over the figures, but with these brushstrokes, Sorn was able to evoke the elusiveness of life, which he experienced on his bus trips through the city. Outside the window, we cannot discern any specific details. As observers, we feel we are hurrying past a bustling city, with people in motion on the sidewalk in front of illuminated shop windows. But although Sorn's intent was to create life and movement in the scene, this should not be conveyed diffusely because that could create a sense of unease. The eye needs something to rest on, something stable in the composition. In Sorn's painting, we find this stability through the woman in the foreground and, in particular, through her hand as it holds the string on the box. Her fingers are tightly holding the string. This is how she keeps the package in place on her lap during the bumpy trip through the city. Her firm grip is indicated by the clear black shadow that her hand throws on the box, which further accentuates the strong electric light hitting her hand. You could almost say that this detail of the composition is a summary of the painting's theme, the play of light and shade. In any case, this quiet detail provides some stability to the dynamic composition. There is something sensual in the depiction of her hand and the light and shadow that falls on it, which reminds us of the painting's human subject matter. The Impressionists like to paint the vibrant life of the Parisian metropolis, and in this way, Sorn aligns himself to this style in terms of his subject. However, this painting gives a somewhat ambivalent image of modern urban life. We see public transport in the city lit up by electricity, symbols of modern conveniences. At the same time, Sorn's representation also contains a human perspective on big city life with all of its innovations. The omnibus is full, conveying to us the crowded city. Still, we see from the woman's facial expression and the tan's hand holding the large box the loneliness and isolation of the city. Despite their different social classes, the five figures are all dressed in black, which underlines their anonymity and interchangeability. Son's depiction of the subject reveals the paradox of the modern metropolis. Scholars often mention Sorn's skill as a portrayer of light, as well as his ability to paint in a way that hides the effort and give lightness to his brushstrokes. These two qualities are also what we see in the etchings he created during his years in Paris. The painting omnibus has been reproduced by Sorn himself in a number of prints. 
where the image as a result of the technique is reversed. The etchings were likely made in Sworn's studio on Boulevard de Clichy in Paris in the spring of 1892, for instance, while he worked on the second version of Omnibus. In the etching, the hat box in the foreground is round like in the second painting. Many 19th century painters hired printmakers to transfer their paintings into prints. The printmaker had the difficult task of bringing out a work's essence using all the possibilities of the medium. But Sorn reproduced his works into etchings himself. It was during his years in Paris that Sorn really established himself as one of the leading printmakers of the era. With his printmaking skills, he could transform his large format oil paintings into prints, which were easy to distribute and made his works even more accessible. They could be reproduced in magazines and newspapers and thus could be seen by a much wider audience. If you see Sorn's graphic works in an international context, there was a renaissance of the art of etching and of the Dutch Baroque artist Rembrandt during the 19th century, and Anderson was affected by both of these revivals. The etching revival was an international trend that lasted roughly from 1850 to 1930. During this time, graphic techniques became very popular, and a strong collector's market developed where the most popular artists could fetch high prices for their prints. As a result of this rediscovery of etching, Rembrandt's etchings once again became very influential to artists of the time. In previous centuries, a distinction was made between painters and printmakers, where printmakers traditionally had lower status. But during the 19th century rediscovery of the art of etching, this distinction lost significance as many painters learned graphic techniques that they came to use. Rembrandt, as a 17th century example of this dual role of painter-printmaker, figured in the debate of reproductions in original prints. At the same time, Rembrandt's graphic works became available again and were circulated extensively, and in many debates his etchings were cited as examples of personal, expressive and original works. In this way, Rembrandt's creativity in the use of the medium and his technique inspired 19th century printmakers like Anders Sorn. When Sorn made his first etching in the early 1880s, he already showed interest in Rembrandt's technique, and he developed it based on this interest and on the literature on etching that was available at the time. The spontaneous and powerful style that Sorn developed in his graphic work is said to have influenced his painting. The 19th century Rembrandt revival was not limited to etching. Also in painting, artists were inspired by the Dutch Baroque artists' methods and techniques. This was reflected in the effective use of relatively few and rather dark colors. In Sorn's Omnibus One, the brushwork is reminiscent of the Impressionists, while the coloring is in stark contrast to the predominantly light colors from the entire spectrum that they used. The Impressionists rarely used black. In this painting, Sorn mainly uses the color combination of black, white, and yellow, and the intermediate tone of gray. To these colors, he adds brown, beige, and skin tones. 
The scarcity of color is a result of the yellow glow of the electric light reflecting off the black clothing. The second version of the painting Omnibus was shown at the 1892 Paris Salon and was well received. Contemporary art critics described the work as an ultra-modern painting with a desirable impressionism and a surprisingly sure hand. Immediately after completing the first version of the painting, Andersorn seems to have started working on the second, which was sent to the United States and exhibited at the World's Fair in Chicago, where Sorn established his American career. We should probably say a bit more about the 19th century world exhibitions of fairs and their significance. The 19th century was a time of rapid industrialization, but it was also the great century of nation-building. Both of these aspects came together in the world fairs. The first such fair was held in 1851 at the Crystal Palace in Hyde Park, London, and was followed by many more throughout the Western world. It simply became an important place to showcase your nation at its best and to compete against the other nations. What was displayed at these fairs was very diverse. Each nation presented its latest and greatest innovations and featured technical inventions, industrial or craft products, as well as architecture and art. For example, the Eiffel Tower in Paris was built for the 1889 World's Fair and the tower itself was the entrance to the exhibition. Each nation also had a section for arts and crafts and the fair provided the opportunity for artists to make deals with buyers or industry representatives. In 1893 it was Chicago's turn. The World's Fair was held to mark the 400th anniversary of Christopher Columbus' arrival in America in 1492 and therefore it was called the Columbian World's Fair. The Swedish art establishment seems to have been very involved in the preparations for the Chicago World's Fair. For the position of the curator for the art section, several different names were discussed, including the painter Oskar Björk, who had been appointed as a member of the Chicago delegation from the outset. The members of the Artists' Union in Swedish, Konstnadsförbundet, which had been founded in 1886 in opposition to the Royal Academy of Arts and the art institutions in Stockholm, rejected Björk and suggested Anders Sorn instead. Sorn was not only more internationally experienced and had established international contacts, he also spoke excellent English. Sorn was not at all such an obvious candidate for the members of the Royal Academy and they felt that the curator should be appointed after the works of art had left Sweden. In that way, a situation could be avoided where the artists' union could use their only leverage, refuse to exhibit if they were unhappy with the choice of curator. In 1892, Rickard Berg, chairman of the artists' union, wrote the following to his friend Karl Nordström. Björk says that the members of the artist union may send as much as they want and we must take the wind out of their sails and we must have Sorn as curator. Barry added later, I'm now scheming like hell to ensure our success in Chicago. Nordström responded in the same vein, stating that it is probably wise to take lead in the Chicago exhibition. If we're going to take part, of course, we should also dominate. After discussions and various strategic moves, Sorn was finally elected curator in November 1892. 
the Academy members soon came to terms with this decision. It turned out that Sorn had an elaborate plan, which he executed with a firm hand. As early as January 1893, Sorn crossed the Atlantic via London and Liverpool on the ocean liner Etruria to begin his work in Chicago. From day one, Sorn made important contacts and networked with the right people, who would later contribute to the success of the Swedish section. Anders and Emma Sorn worked to create an American interest in Swedish art, and the exhibition was a great financial success for the Swedish section. The Chicago World's Fair was inaugurated on May 1, 1893, by President Grover Cleveland, whose portrait Anders Sorn painted in 1899. The Swedish section was far more successful than the Danish and Norwegian sections, which had sales of $2,700 each. The Swedish section had sales of $30,000, of which Sorn, who, in all fairness, had the most works in the exhibition, sold for half of that amount to prestigious families like the Vanderbilts, Deerings, Yerkes, and Williams. Moreover, in addition to the portrait of the hotel magnate Potter Palmer's wife, Sorn received commissions estimated at an additional $10,000. Based on these results, one could say that the exhibition was a triumph both for the Swedish section and for Anders Sorn himself. In August 1893, Anders Sorn wrote a letter to the Gothenburg patron Pontus Furstenberg in which he deemed the exhibition a great success and described how the Society of American Artists had borrowed the entire section to exhibit it in New York during January and February of 1894. Sorn wrote, Our art exhibition was a great success. It was ranked first among all the nations. As soon as the exhibition opened, the artists who were here and the curators began to make a habit of meeting their friends in the Swedish section of fine art building or taking them there first. In the 1894 exhibition in New York, all the Swedish contributions from the World's Fair were shown at the Society of American Artists. Andersson was given a very central place with works such as The Waltz, Omnibus, Mrs. Potter Palmer, Mr. Thomas Wheeler, and a toast in the Edun Society. It also enabled him to have a studio during his time in New York. Sorn was a highly skilled entrepreneur and networker, and there is no doubt that the Swedish exhibition in New York in 1893 was entirely his doing. In addition, he established his own career in the United States by the way of the 1893 World's Fair in Chicago. In the Swedish evaluations of the World Exhibition, Sorn received some criticism for promoting himself and his own success at the expense of others. Through the World's Fair in Chicago and his paintings exhibited there, Sorn made contact with the art collector Isabella Stewart Gardner, whose collection is now shown at the renowned Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston. She bought the second version of Omnibus at the World's Fair for $1,600. It was the first, but not the last, work she bought from him. They grew to be friends, and she became an important contact for him and his art dealings during his travels in the United States. In 1894, he celebrated his birthday as Mrs. Gardner's guest in Boston before sailing back to Europe. 
American art scholars have pondered why Isabella Stewart Gardner was so enamored of the work of Omnibus II when she saw it at the Chicago Fair. The Parisian art critics had seen the painting as genuinely modern, and the Americans felt the same way. They perceived the urban pulse of the time, and that it was painted in a careful impressionist style added an other dimension of modernity. Mrs. Stuart Gardner was a frequent rider of Boston streetcars, and she was immediately delighted with the subject, which also exists as an etching in her collection. The interpretation is that she identified with the female passengers in the carriage. The story of Omnibus and how Anderson became an internationally famous artist is what we wanted to highlight in this episode. Anderson was a highly skilled painter in both watercolour and oil, but also a talented printmaker who had many strings to his bow, both in terms of subject and expression. In Sweden, when we hear the name Andersson, we may think of his national romantic scenes from Dalekarlia, such as his most famous painting, Midsummer Dance. However, Sorn's work was not limited to the spectrum of national romanticism. At the same time as he painted these Swedish subjects, he also developed an internationally viable style that became very popular on both sides of the Atlantic. In this respect, his work is comparable to that of contemporaries such as the American artist John Singer Sargent and the Spanish painter Joaquin Sorolla. Sorn built himself a solid reputation as a portrait painter during his early years in Paris, while also developing impressionist qualities in his paintings. In his many commissions of members of the upper class, American presidents and Swedish royalty, he used loose and quick brushstrokes that gave a vibrant impression of the sitter. His ability to imitate luxurious materials such as fur with just a few broad brushstrokes also boosted his popularity as a portrait painter. His skill in painting materials can also be seen in Omnibus, where in all the garments painted in dark shades, we can still sense the different shapes and materials, such as the feather boa, which is suggested by the simple wavy yellow brushstrokes that are reflections of light in the glossy material. He applied his brushstrokes onto the canvas with great awareness and energy, but Equally noteworthy was his cultivation and maintenance of relationships with new clients and markets. And that's what we wanted to say about Andersorn Omnibus One. We hope that you will continue to listen to our podcast Scandinavian Art by Konsthistorie Podden. Our next episode will be released soon. In our next episode, we will take you to Finland and the Finnish artist Albert Edelfeldt and his realistic painting at sea. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. <laughs>